Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I'm Kathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and an experienced compliance professional, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Following the introduction of the senior managers regime in the UK, accountability regimes have proliferated across the globe, including our own Irish individual accountability framework. Listeners will most likely be familiar now with the regime itself and its four components, the senior executive accountability regime, the conduct standards, the fitness and probity regime, and the administrative sanctions regime. Um, And we are not in Ireland approaching this from a standing start. We already had a fitness and probity regime in place and of course, directors, responsibilities, companies acts, et cetera. Um, So to explore the international scene a bit further, I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Azaria, Nukajam, welcome Azaria to our podcast and thanks for for joining us today. Thanks Kathy. Um, May I start just by saying that it's an absolute pleasure to be here today to discuss one of my favourite areas of practice. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me Kathy and the Compliance Institute and I will flag up front that you may need to shut me up at some stage. I very much look forward to the next um, hour or so of discussion. Um, I'm looking forward (laughs) to this Azaria. (laughs) Wonderful. As I said, our listeners are aware of the the detail of the IAF, um, but could you just give us a snapshot of where we are now in the rolling out of the regime? So in terms of timelines then, we've been on a little bit of a journey and so I'll start by talking about the last year and then move on um, to discuss what lies ahead. So we've already seen the enactment of the Central Bank Individual Accountability Framework Act 2023 back in March of this year. And as you know, this piece of legislation sets out the framework for the Senior Executive Accountability Regime, or SEA, as it is more commonly known, the conduct standards, which are essentially just a prescription of standards of behaviour that is expected of regulated financial service providers and their staff. And then the Act also introduces enhancements to the existing fitness and probity regime, along with enhancements to the existing administrative sanctions procedure. Also in March 2023, the central bank launched a three-month consultation process on the key aspects of the IAF. And included within this consultation paper was the draft regulations and the draft IAF guidance, which was intended to clarify the central bank's approach and expectations regarding the implementation of the, the regime. Shortly after that, Um, various sections of the Act commenced in April 2023. And so some firms are already in the throw of compliance. Some of the um, parts or sections of the the Act that have now come into force include the extension of the fitness and probity regime to certain holding companies. Um, Individuals in breach of their obligations became subject to the direct enforcement action by the Central Bank of Ireland, and that is regardless of um, participation. I'm sure we, we're all familiar with that concept, but it's basically the idea that it, it allows the central bank to take enforcement action against individuals directly, 
um, rather than only where there are a, where the firm itself has proven to um, sorry where the individual itself has proven to have participated in any wrongdoing by the firm. The final point to note around um, areas that are already uh, in force is that the central bank can now investigate individuals that performed a controlled function, which is commonly known as a CF role, up to six years prior to the commencement of that investigation. So as we can already see, the central bank or now has the ability to start to use these increasing powers of enforcement that it's been granted under the new regime. To bring us a little bit further along in the journey, um, in April this year also, the central bank published updated procedures for fitness and probity investigations, suspensions and prohibitions, and these became immediately uh, effective from um, April of this year as well. And then just a couple of weeks ago, which I believe was I, the 16th of November, the central bank issued its feedback statement, guidance and regulations in respect of the individual accountability framework, which followed a three month consultation period. As part of this publication, the central bank, um, which is intended to go a significant way in providing clarity to in-scope firms and individuals regarding their obligations under the IAF. I will flag again at this stage that the final version of the guidance includes some very key changes in response to stakeholder feedback. And so for those that haven't picked that up and, and reviewed them at this moment, I would strongly recommend that it's, it, it's a good time to do so ahead of uh, the deadlines that are coming up. So in terms of the, the, the main or more fleshy aspects of compliance and what we can expect from the 29th of December is that the conduct standards and the enhanced fitness and probity regime will become applicable. That is the 29th of December, 2023. There have been some mixed messages regarding whether it's the 29th of December or the 31st of December. However, a variety of more recently published press releases by the central bank have in fact noted that is the 29th of December, which is the Friday and not the Sunday. <laughs> um, on the 1st of July, 2024, the final element of this individual accountability framework regime which is the SEA, will become applicable for those in-scope firms in their, in their initial phase. However, one thing that's worth not noting is that the independent non-executive directors that are at in-scope firms will not be brought into scope until the 1st of July 2025. And this is, um, this is very recently announced by the central bank. Well, uh, I would say the decision comes as a direct response of um, industry and key exactly. stakeholders who, yes, who raise certain yeah. concerns about the implications of bringing the INEDs within scope at this stage. So what the central bank suggested then is that it would allow a 12 month period um, to provide what it describes as a learning opportunity for both in-scope firms and for the central bank. And this has been much welcome news within the industry. That takes us across the timeline then at this, at this stage. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for that summary, uh, Azaria. And where are and where should in scope institutions be at this stage? Well, there is quite a lot to cover in this area. Um, and so I will highlight, highlight what I consider to be the key areas of progress and development that firms should by now have made 
it might be worth me splitting this between the journey to date as we see it for all firms versus those firms that are only in scope of or for those firms that are in scope of the CEO regime in addition to all of the other areas. So for all firms by now they should be well along the way to compliance with the aspects of the IAF regime such as the conduct standards and the enhanced fitness and probity regime which are effective from the 29th of December 2023. All firms should by now have viewed their own internal culture and values and ethos framework and compared these against the principles of the IAF to determine the areas within the business that need particular focus for alignment. In addition, individual obligations as well as collective obligations and governance structures, structures within businesses should have been reviewed to ensure that everyone is clear within the business on where responsibilities and accountabilities lie. And this includes the development, enhancement, and in some areas, brand new implementation of clear reporting lines and internal organizational structure charts. Of utmost importance in my view is training. I think um, a lot of firms have underestimated how technical the regime is and what the regime means from a practical day-to-day -day perspective and so it goes without saying that by now and given that we are just a few weeks away from the first tranche of, of uh, bigger scale um, rules but firms and their staff should be ready um, to comply from day one and because of this I believe firms at this stage should have delivered trainings on the rules to which staff will be subject to and this includes for example in relation to reasonable steps as well as the conduct standards. Those senior managers that are responsible for assessing and certifying fit and proper individuals should also by now have received training um, on the point of certification, firms should by now have identified their certification population, undertaken a fitness and probity framework gap assessment and implemented policies and procedures or enhanced existing policies and procedures to support the new requirements. I pause for a second to, to highlight, maybe emphasize that the importance of this exercise should not be understated. This is not a tick box um, exercise and I think during my work um, on, on the implementation of the SMCR regime in the UK a lot of firms we found had underestimated what was required to, in order to be able to properly develop a robust fitness and probity framework and so from my perspective I wanted to draw out a few key areas Firms should have a clear framework that sets out the criteria against which certification staff will be assessed the nature of the assessment process, for example, whether it will form part of the performance appraisal, what information will be provided to staff and to the assessors, and what opportunity they will have to provide informational evidence where certain assertions are made. The firm should also, or firms rather, should also consider whether there is any right of appeal against the decision not to certify an individual as fit and proper, and then consider what that means or the potential consequences of such decisions in terms of ongoing compliance, uh, ongoing employment, sorry. Uh, of course, um, within the Irish financial services industry, this has been a very tricky area for firms to grapple with and it has been the subject of much discussion around how firms will um, implement their own internal frameworks on this area. I also think that firms should have 
by the stage, reviewed and enhanced their existing um, employment and contractual documentations, and undertaken an assessment of the existing contracts against the new rules proposed under the IAF. Firms should now at least be determining which changes are required, even though those contractual agreements may not at this stage been may not have at this age been updated. Firms should also by now have reviewed job titles, duties and descriptions and made any relevant amendments to ensure that they reflect the duties and obligations for which the individuals are subject within their controlled functions. Of course, it goes without saying that from an HR perspective, there is a lot of work to do. And I think by now, HR, as well as the broader business, should have reviewed and enhanced the existing policies and procedures um, that are specific to HR. So, for example, in relation to disciplinary action, whistleblowing, breaches and escalations, data protection even, we do know that there's a significant da data gathering and retention um, exercise that will, be, that will be required under this regime. So it's worth at this stage also looking at data protection policies. Um, and one other thing to consider, which often is pushed back till the very sort of last minute, is any policies around the insurance coverage for senior individuals within the regime. As you know, individual liability has also been an area of concern um, for firms preparing to implement the regime. From a conduct standards perspective, firms should also by now have identified their in-scope population for current staff and new hires, as well as assessed and rolled out of additional the additional conduct standards for senior executives. The final point, which I think all firms should have by now considered or at least implemented, is enhanced record keeping practices. This is something that Central Bank cannot underscore enough. And I believe that this is an area where the implementation of technology can greatly support the firm in its compliance endeavours, because as we can see, the central bank is expecting firms to retain not just management information, but records of all of the workflows and processes and assessments that are being carried out as part of its as part of a firm's demonstrate demonstration of compliance with the regime. Finally, now looking at SEER specifically, I would suggest um, that all of the other areas I've touched upon applies to those firms that are in scope of SEER, but I would add that but by this stage, firms should have identified or be in the process of identifying the senior executive roles and the population within the, the, um, the firm specifically. I would also highlight at this stage that proportionality applies. So where roles don't currently exist and aren't currently required, the central bank is not prescribing that firms introduce those new areas just for the sake of it. Firms should also be mapping out the responsibilities of individuals as well as the firm as a whole and be developing guidance around reasonable steps as well as training on the duty of responsibility, which I hope to touch upon further, um, further on. The final point to notice, and this is one which again, I hope to, to speak on in, in more detail, is around the review of existing outsourcing arrangements. As you know, firms in scope of SEER will be required to allocate a senior executive function, which is responsible for the firm's outgoing arrangements. This means that oversight must be provided by the PCF responsible for outsourcing and will also need to be reflected in the 
management responsibilities, Matt, as well as the statement of responsibilities. And so the work in this area to review SLAs, to review processes around due diligences and management information and oversight programmes should be well on the way. We cannot underestimate the work that is required in this area either. Zaria, some really good steers there um, for, for listeners. Um, you know, you should have, you know, you should have um reviewed your culture training, which sometimes does is left to the end. Um, yes. you know, that should have been thought about and planned uh, for from, from the beginning. Um, employment contracts should be bolted down. Uh, something you've read something data protection, which you know. Everybody who's subject to the regime are data subjects with data subject rights. So if anything hasn't been done properly, this will be surfaced in a subject access request. So you, you need to be uh, cognizant of that when, when you're developing your, um, you, you know, whatever uh, forms or whatever your, your data gathering processes are. Um, and you know, record keeping, we kind of think that happens organically, you know, as we, you know, as we, we go through um, either whether it's a project or, you know, whether we're, um, you know, actually rolling it out, we think these things are going to just happen and, um, you know, we'll have folders and or whatever, um, or little databases and they'll get, just get stored. Um, and that doesn't always happen. And um, yes. unfortunately, as we know, in compliance, if, um, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. So uh, we need, you know, really put some thought into your record repositories um so there's there's so much in this it's a bit of it's a bit of a multiverse of issues um exactly so um turning to the international perspective azaria um where accountability regimes are already in place or have been implemented could you talk us through a couple and what, what we could learn from them Yes, sure. So um, individual accountability has become a key tool for setting the standards of good corporate governance across various jurisdictions around the world. And in the past six or seven years, we have seen countries such as Hong Kong, Singapore, Australia, the UK and Malaysia introduce these regimes. Each of these individual accountability regimes share a common objective, which is to strengthen compliance within the financial services industry and to improve executive accountability within firms. The regimes across the jurisdictions that I've mentioned are broadly similar in that they each provide for some form of requirements in relation to two core areas. The first is the identification of responsibilities within a firm for which an individual is to be individually accountable or directly accountable. And the second is the documenting of what each of these individuals are responsible for, mapping of those responsibilities across the organisation to ensure that there are no unnecessary overlaps or gaps in the, the, the governance framework and that all senior level individuals are aware and understand their main individual accountabilities for the functions for which um, they oversee. I'll touch upon the UK regime, which in my view is the most similar to the Irish IAF, before moving on to cover Australia and then Hong Kong. So in 2016, the SMCR um, or the Senior Managers and Certification Regime was introduced in the UK. Initially, the SMCR was aimed at most prudential regulatory authority authorised firms, so credit institutions or banks, um, but it, it has since then been rolled out progressively to cover the entirety of authorised firms within the financial services sector in the UK. Like the Irish regime, the core pillars include a 
senior management specific element, which which enforces a detailed and clear allocation of responsibilities between senior managers at each firms, requiring them to implement statements of responsibilities and responsibilities maps. It also introduces a statutory duty of responsibility to take reasonable steps to prevent regulatory breaches in the areas of the firm for which the individuals are responsible. Are responsible. Again, similar to the Irish regime, in the UK there is the certification regime, which requires firms to check and confirm that employees performing roles relating to the firm's regulated activities are fit and proper, based on their qualifications, competence and personal characteristics. Once this has been confirmed, firms need to issue these, these individuals with certificates and these certificates must be renewed at least once a year. Finally, the SMCR regime introduced the conduct rules, which consist of, consists of a set of rules and standards of behaviour which in scope firms and individuals are required to adhere to and breaches of which can lead to investigations by the relevant um, regulators. Now, moving on to Australia, which has adopted an individual accountability regime, which, it, which is fairly similar both to the UK and Ireland. Um, in Australia, the journey really began in 2018 with the introduction of what is known, commonly known as BEAR, the Banking Executive Accountability Regime. And in its initial phase, this regime was uh, or applied uh, specifically to deposit-taking institutions, so your banks, essentially, of small and medium sizes. The regime aims to drive greater clarity and transparency of, in, um, of individual accountability at in-scope firms. And this also presented a key tool for the Australian regulators to be able to transform governance, risk culture, remuneration, and accountability outcomes within the banking sector in Australia. Shortly after um, its implementation in 2018, the Australian regulators began to pursue firm action against firms for misconduct within the, within the financial services industry. And I will circle back on this point, hopefully, to go into the detail of, of um, what, what action was taken and, and what the outcome was. For Hong Kong, um, their journey began in 2016. Uh, a fairly lighter touch version of the various individual accountability regimes that I've described, the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission issued a circular to all licensed corporations setting out specific measures for augmenting the accountability of senior management. It introduced the concept of managers in charge of core um, functions or MICs and this seeks to enhance individual accountability within in-scope firms in a similar way to that of the UK and Ireland. Um, the regulator stated that the aims of this specific regime was to add clarity as to which individuals should be regarded as members of senior management of licensed corporations and increase awareness of their accountability, regulatory obligations, as well as potential liabilities. It also standardized the format for submission of information by these regulated firms. Um, in relation to all aspects of their management structures, which allowed the regulators to then better oversee the governance and oversight arrangements within regulated entities. And it, in the view of the regulator, helped to further strengthen the corporate governance within these in-scope 
firms. What's interesting to note is that in Hong Kong, the regime did not introduce any new sanctions. However, it did provide the regulator with further powers um, of enforcement and empowered them to hold individuals to account. So in Hong Kong this time, we haven't seen um, enforcement and subsequent sanctions under this regime. Thanks, Azaria. So a couple of common threads and themes um, throughout um, these different accountability regimes in different jurisdictions. So um, have you any sense of how these regimes have been regarded by industry in, in those jurisdictions? Yeah, I may spend just a few minutes speaking on Australia and the UK, um, for which I'm closest to the details. So as I said, regarding Australia, BEAR was introduced in 2018 and the initial response was great, um, with the industry suggesting that a regime such as BEAR was long overdue, overdue and as such, these changes were very much welcome. However, a few years into the regime's enactment, the general consensus remained that the regulators we're not doing enough to go after firms and, and to, to, to perhaps show their teeth as far as the enforcement of, um, of compliance in this area. Following quite a bit of pressure from the industry then, in 2021, a new regime was, was introduced and this came um, on the back of much consumer criticism for the lack of enforcement by the Australian government. Um, and out of that was born the financial accountability regime, which is actually even more closely aligned to the regimes of the UK and Ireland. It, this FAR regime, it is, as it is commonly known, is expected or was presented as the opportunity to enhance the BEAR regime by extending the scope of BEAR and by introducing greater accountability obligations and responsibilities for a broader group of financial services participants. The core elements of this regime are the accountability obligations, um, are that accountability obligations are placed on both firms and individuals. Within Australia, those individuals are referred to as accountable persons, and they are responsible for establishing that they took reasonable steps in carrying out their responsibilities if the regulator raises concerns about potential misconduct or breaches. Under this new regime, firms are now required to submit to the regulator accountability statements as well as maps, which closely mirror the management responsibility um, maps and the statement of responsibility requirements that we've seen in other jurisdictions. There is also a requirement to notify the regulator of any changes in the FAR or governance environment. And firms must ensure that they appoint the correct persons as accountable persons. So this, again, is that requirement around ensuring that the individual that is hired um, or appointed is fit and proper. So again, a lot of criticism and pressure by industry led to this further enhancement um, of the regime. And this somewhat goes to show that in every jurisdiction, this individual accountability framework will, will continue to be a working process and will continue to evolve. Um, in the UK, SMCR was very positively received um, and as with Australia, it was seen as an enforcement tool through which senior individuals could be sanctioned for systemic failings and serious mis mis misconduct that occurred um, under their remit. 
However, given that there has only been one enforcement action since the inception of SMCR, there's been a split in views as to what that really means. On the one hand, the industry and its participants have viewed this as evidence of the SMCR proven to, being proven to be effective at driving a positive culture of, con of good conduct and compliance, and that the SMCR has raised industry uh, standards overall. But on the other hand, um, certain participants, um, as well as the cons consumer seg segment of um, the environment are suggesting that this indicates the regulator is not doing enough in this area. In my personal view, however, there have been circa 70 investigations opened since the SMCR, and it shows, in, in, in my view, the regulator's commitment to wanting to, and actually using the, the tool, the, SM, the tools granted under SMCR to oversee firms in a proactive way and to take action um, where necessary. The other oh, point. Sorry, you carry on. Sorry. The, we can edit the final point. Okay. <laughs> the final point around um, how the SMCR has been viewed is quite interesting for the UK in particular because prior to the um, implementation of SMCR, there were concerns expressed that firms would find it difficult to recruit individuals to senior roles, given the new responsibilities and the potential regulatory risk exposures. However, um, some four years later, in December 2020, um, the Prudential Regulatory Authority actually published its findings from a survey to the industry, which noted a broad consensus that firstly, the SMCR was a positive change and a posit and, and did um, have a positive impact on the industry. And also it reported that most firms were not hindered from recruiting individuals with the right level of skills, knowledge and expertise as needed, um, as had been originally um, feared by, by industry. Thanks, Azaria. And just some really interesting kind of uh, observations, really, um, on that. <clears throat> just on the, you, you know, this this um, idea that it's an enforcement process. Um, I mean, really, it should drive culture and right behaviours and good customer outcomes. And, Absolutely. you know, in an ideal world, you know, yes, there should be investigations, but there shouldn't be enforcement. So maybe there's yes. a kind of an expectation gap among stakeholders there, you know, that, yes. you know, like a good control, if you detect a problem or, you know, then or, or you know, prevention is better than cure. And if you detect a problem, it's it's the system working rather than, yes. you know, you know, we don't have, um, you, you know, we don't have you know, me measuring success by fines. It's really, fines. you know, measuring success by the number of issues that are surfaced, you know, in an industry, you know, or, or bad customer outcomes. So that's I that's really interesting. More. Yeah, I can um, agree more. And and just to comment, uh, piggyback on what you've just said. Actually, when looking at the investigations pursued by the FCA. One of the key factors in the outcome of any decision to take enforcement is whether the individual themselves could evidence that they had taken reasonable steps. And I think the fact that they, in many occasions they could, it prevented the subsequent fines that we would have expected um, from the regulator. And I think that really speaks to the amount of resourcing and training and development that has gone into um, 
into firms compliance frameworks to ensure that staff really do understand what it means to demonstrate compliance and to to live in the spirit work in the spirit of the regime rather than simply relying only on the letter of, of the law yes and and actually that neatly brings me to my other observation on what you said in relation to the recruitment issues um the Compliance Institute, um, in, in conjunction with Mazars, had a, a have conducted um, studies, um, and I think yeah, we published last week our the second iteration of of the study. And one issue that you know the the dial hadn't moved on was that the issue of the problem of recruitment um, that firms might face in the face of you know the introduction of our individual accountability regime. Um, yes. And I made an observation around the fact that um, really it's it's for compliance professionals. You know, we have seen accountability regimes come in before, for example, in data protection. Very different, but it's still accountability. That's really that was the big change that GDPR brought in was accountability. Yes. <laughs> so we, we've seen this before. Um, we spent, you know, the last couple of decades taking the fear factor out of regulation, you know, from, yes. from day one, that has been our job. Um, yes. And I think really it, it is for us to step up um, and, and, and to take the fear factor out of, of, you know, prospective candidates or applicants, you know, that they, yeah. that they, they will consider roles that are PCF and under the regime. Um, and, yes. you know, as you described, you know, obviously there was, there was a support system put in place in terms of, um, you know, compliance and demonstrating reasonable steps so that, that you know, that, yes. you know, I think, you know, that, that there's a job for it for compliance professionals to ensure that that support system is in place for, um, candidates and 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 for for PCF uh, and CF one role holders, um, and then Absolutely. back to our old friend evidence. You know that yes. you, know, <laughs> you know we need um, systems for documenting and evidencing easily. Um, uh, you know the reasonable steps. So um, so those are just a couple of thoughts on on what you just said there. Um, yes, no, I I couldn't agree more. And in fact, I would go a step further um, on the point around training and development and the, the support provided by compliance is the firm should think about moving away from the generic training modules that you often tend to find are very common within the industry and put this back to the individuals who themselves will be subject to the regime, get to the heart of what it is they don't and do not and do understand where they see the challenges and provide them with the right bespoke tools to be able to understand and execute or deliver upon those obligations, not only from day one, but on an ongoing basis. And again, this is a point of which I would suggest there is, this is not a box ticking exercise and a sort of cookie cutter approach should not be taken to implementation of the behaviors that are expected um, yeah. of, of staff within scope. Thanks, Azaria. And um, what, in your view, um, has been a successful regime? Um, is there such a thing? Um, and how do you define success in this context? I would say um, it is a thing. And actually, I will circle back to the points and the points I raised about the UK. If I were to point to one, albeit not without its flaws, which all will hopefully touch upon later, I would say the UK appears to be a success story. Um, Improvements in behaviours in the industry, including in relation to conduct and accountability uh, by individuals within the industry, have been widely recognised by the regulators, by trade associations and other bodies, uh, and 
by the SMF function holders themselves. And in a PLRA um, industry survey that I referred to earlier, the majority of feedback was positive and actually 94% of senior managers were in agreement that the SMCR <clears throat> has improved conduct and accountability in the financial sector and has contributed to the enforcement of a culture of good conduct and of strong compliance. The other point which I think points to a success, to the success of, of the, the regime is that despite having been, despite there having been over 70 investigations undertaken by the regulator, we've only seen enforcement action for one. And this relates to a breach of, um, th this uh, relates to a breach of non-financial conduct. I would also say the other important point, which isn't often, um, mentioned when it comes to these sorts of regime is that actually the inclusion of these stringent processes and framework and standards for assessing individuals, including the requirement for regulatory references, has mitigated much of the risk during the hiring processes, um, you know, against bad hires, against individuals that actually do not, whilst maybe technically strong, do not have the right character and attributes to be able to work within such, a, such an environment. Yeah, it's actually, you know, risk management for the firm itself, yes. actually. Yeah, exactly, exactly. that. Risk yeah, management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really good point. Really good point. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, enforcement um, yes. in the UK. Um, have you seen other other enforcement? Yeah, so other than the UK, the one other area of enforcement or jurisdiction where we have seen enforcement came quite early on in the implementation of the regime. And this relates to the regime in Australia. So as I touched upon a little bit um, earlier, um, in Australia, I think this was 2018, no, 2019, excuse me, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority um, commenced an investigation against um, a, a firm called um, Westpac, and it examined the prudential concerns arising from allegations by one firm, another firm in relation to um, Westpac, that it had breached anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism laws. And the Bear regime at the time gave the regulators uh, the tools that they required and the framework that they required to be able to go in and investigate. Although the investigation did not find evidence of breaches of the Banking Act or of Bear, um, the regulators said at the time that they were determined to ensure that they where they did find areas of deficiencies within risk governance and weaknesses within the firm's overall regulatory uh, compliance framework, that they would put those deficiencies right, they would improve upon them, and they would continue to oversee the remediation of areas presented, um, which presented weaknesses. And the regulator recommitted to keeping um, keeping proactive in overseeing firms' compliance with what is now the FAR regime and um, actually requiring firms to continue to provide more data um, so that it can capture issues at an earlier stage um, of their development. 
So it, the, the regulator also said that it will continue to hold um, all firms accountable for delivery of any improvements required, even if their investigations do not subsequently lead to enforcement. And I think that this is a core message across the jurisdictions where there have been investigations, but very little by way of enforcement action. Okay, sorry. So turning back um, to uh, what, we're, what we're about to embark on in Ireland, um, what can firms learn from the international rollout and experience? I think there are a few things we can learn, um, but, but I'll, I'll focus on those that are sort of more serious. Um, do not underestimate the work required to comply um, uh, from, from my perspective and my experience with supporting firms with implementation of the SMCR, a lot of the work was left late because firms underestimated the length of time it would take firstly to gather the information and then to make sense of it and put them in a sort of categorization, you know, make the data useful for the purposes of, of, of developing their internal compliance framework. Um, the second thing is that regulation, regulations, regulators, sorry, will take action. They will investigate firms as well as individuals. Even though we haven't seen a huge amount of enforcement, we have seen across other jurisdictions that regulators are proactive. They are requesting information um, from individuals. They are interviewing staff members within these regulated firms. And actually to that end, particularly those occupying senior management roles, or as we call them in, in Ireland, the SES senior executive function roles, be prepared to answer to the regulator. So demonstrate, be ready to demonstrate that you not only understand your business, but you understand the risks to which the activities that are undertaken within the business exposes you individually to and then the firm um, on the whole. The, the other thing uh, that's worth flagging as well in terms of learnings is that the regime of individual accountability is a work in progress and we saw it evolve in Australia. Um, we, we, we are also seeing it evolve in the UK and the central bank has indicated that it will keep the regime under ongoing review. One of the unintended consequences, I would say, of the regime is around data management. And I think data management will be an data management will be integral to the success of firms from a compliance perspective. And um, the central bank has clearly articulated its expectations around audit trails and record keeping. I think this is a, would be a good point to restate the importance of investing in technology where possible, particularly for larger firms that have a a more a, a wider scope or more burdensome um, uh, job of, of complying with this regime. And then finally, in terms of and finally, I believe that there will be a shift towards a more positive culture, which will require ownership at senior management level and will require them to set the right tone from the top and get by and across the business. And they too, we will, I expect, see an increase in awareness of the importance of good conduct within the financial services industry. And I think that in the way the individual accountability regimes have contributed to a variety of regulators' strategic ob objectives around consumer protection and good outcomes for, for, for consumers, I believe that we will see something similar in Ireland. Thanks, Azaria. And just on, in relation to your point on don't underestimate the, the amount of time, 
there also needs to be due diligence done on all this information that you're gathering. You know, there's yes. an awful lot's going to have to, it's not on checking, it's going to have to be done. Um, it, was a, it was a point that was um, in the Dear CEO letters on, on fitness and probity um, a couple of years ago. It was a feature that, you know, to um, make sure that you build in time for due diligence because that will not go smoothly. Um, it rarely yeah. does. Um, so so just, just an afterthought on that one. Um, so what are the big pitfalls for firms? What, what have you learned in terms of what, what could they get wrong um, based on your experience? A lack of preparedness, I would say, um, is, is a pitfall. Um, Under-resourcing, I can't overstate that for many firms, this process will be resource intensive and very costly. And I think often, given what I said about the failure to plan, to properly plan, uh, to create a roadmap for implementation and then to allocate actions, owners and resources, firms often find that they don't have adequate enough or you know, resources to be able to, to um, properly undertake the initial implementation as well as ongoing maintenance of its compliance with the regime. I mean, we've spoken about all of the various monitoring activities that are involved in ensuring that the firm remains compliant. And this often um, can be perceived as being the responsibility of the compliance function. However, we have come to see, as is the case in the UK, in Australia, for example, that resources are typically um, drawn upon across all areas of the business, from the first line, the business units, all the way to HR. The resource and the kind of cost implications are where firms have often underestimated and therefore subsequently sort of fallen short, um, if you will. The other thing to add, also linked to resource intense, uh, intensivity, is that there is a significant administrative burden for both firms and the regulators. And this has been a consistent complaint across various regimes, including the SMCR, um, where, for example, firms have said that the amount of time it takes for the regulators to authorise new senior managers have been lengthy and therefore has created disruptions to their business planning, um, which has then had a negative uh, impact on BAU as well as the sort of operational aspects of, of the business. Um, the other element as well is that with the regulator taking it's uh, slightly longer than would be expected to approve individuals, individuals themselves aren't or have underestimated the importance of having in place adequate handover and transition policies. And so when individuals within businesses have suddenly departed, they have been left with gaps that are often difficult to fill and bring back up to the standards required under the accountability regime. Thanks, Azaria. Join us in the next episode where we look at the current position in Ireland, the main themes and challenges of implementation so far, what is keeping programme managers and stakeholders awake at night, and we look at the duty of responsibility in some more detail. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.